Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Cracking Podcastville. Happy generic time of the day. Additional support for the Bystander Podcast provided by Sound Reaper Graphics, Shift Bainbridge, BI Hoops, and Manscaped.com. The precision tool for your family jewels. Save 20% off and get free shipping when you use the code TINY at checkout. Today's panel discussion comes from Tuesday, February 4th, 2020. From Town Hall, Seattle. It's moderated by Bob Redman. We will be listening in on this panel discussion of how powerful factors affect our health. How are the health of soil, plants, bees, and humans connected? Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Thank you, Ware, and thank you all for being here. Um, town hall's got so many, uh, people who make these things possible. I also want to thank Edward, whose last day was Friday, but his spirit is here. Um, Candace and Jonathan, Gigi and Elizabeth, who worked on the podcast and tonight's crew, Haley and everybody else. Thanks for making it all possible. Also, thanks to Big Dipper Waxworks, who makes candles. You probably might know that, but they also do a lot to support pollinators and uh, made this event possible because um, we're paying, not a lot, but we're paying something to all the participants, which I think is important. And uh, there was some airfare and hotel and stuff involved. So Big Dipper made that. 
that happen. Also, thanks to our tablers and uh, community partners, the Common Acre and King County Loop Biosolids. If you didn't get your bag of loop, you can still do it before you go home. This is uh, poop in the cycle. And um, also, um, my wife, Amy, thank you for being here. And some friends from Colon Stars, my cancer group, they made it out. So thank you for being here, too. Um, so tonight what's going to happen is I, I have some introductory notes and some context uh, to share. Uh, two stories is what that boils down to. And then each panelist, four of them, are going to talk for five minutes or maybe five and a half. And um, then we're going to have some conversation up here. I have some questions to ask them. And then we're going to invite you to ask some questions too. So all that's going to happen. And, and most of all, uh, we'll make sure that you leave with some without this, oh my God, what the heck do we do now feeling? But a feeling of like, oh, I think I learned something. And I think there's something that I might want to do. So that's kind of our goal for the evening. And I was so glad to hear that where... Um, uh, mentioned the Duwamish. When I was here, that wasn't part of our curtain speech, but so important to mention um, that this land that we're on used to be a forest, downtown Seattle. And in fact, uh, from Kent to Shoreline and all the way out past Carnation, this was Duwamish land, uh, still is, and for over 10,000 years, many generations. And um, just acknowledging that is one thing, but we also want to change what we do and how we treat this land and what relationships we have with the creatures and the plants and everything in it. And uh, just by being here, you're already part of that. You've made a commitment to spend your time to change the relationships that we have with this natural world that we love. Um, I do have a couple of questions for you to start off. So how many people here are gardeners? Raise your hand. All right, interesting. And the panelists, feel free to look around because this is all, this is data. Um, how many people are beekeepers? All right, some beekeepers here. Farmers, any like true blue farmers? Wow, okay. Um, how many people are concerned about health issues, yours or somebody close to you? All right. So, how many people consider themselves scientists? All right, good. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't see very much, probably because it's a little bit rude, but I'm going to take a picture. Um, we just got a document that this many people came out to hear about the microbiome. All right? Okay, so um, the first story, um, at least for these purposes, starts 15 years ago. I was living as a writer in residence for the Hugo House in Belltown. That's the little cottage was where I lived, surrounded by a garden and skyscrapers. And um, it introduced, it reintroduced me, an Ohio kid, it reintroduced me to um, the natural world, and I got an up-close look. And um, in, sh in short order, I became a beekeeper. Um, a commercial beekeeper, a small one, but nevertheless, I participated. This, uh, the one on the right is a swarm happening out at our apiary incarnation. Uh, lower left is, you can't see it, but that was a project that, um, I worked on at the airport. And, um, the upper one is from Forest Ridge Girls School out in Bellevue. Um, all pretty deep into bees. And, um, 
it was just a practice. And the more I, I learned about bees, though, I realized that their diet was pretty important. This, and believe me, a lot of beekeepers, this is already blind to them. But their diet is super important. And beyond that, it's what's in the soil that grows the flowers that produce the nectar and pollen that the bees eat. So, um, and there's a small group of beekeepers who are coming to this understanding and, and trying to change practices. And that's kind of where I'm at. Um, the second part of the story is that, um, three years ago, I got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Um, it was, you know, pretty bad right away. And except for a few months when I tested negative, I've had it it's still current. It's in my, uh, liver and my lungs and now my bones. And I had, uh, five major surgeries. That first year spent all told a month in the hospital, two courses of radiation, um, couple emergency room visits for fun and um I'm into 30 something infusions of chemotherapy and I mention this I heard you go oh um not because it's uncommon and like oh my god I had to go through this stuff but because it's common it's so common we all of us uh if we don't have cancer we know somebody who has and we've experienced this and I, I think the weird myth is that oh this person is struggling and battling cancer it's all of us it's all of us who are fighting it in this year an estimated 150,000 adults in the United States will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer just that one okay that's one in 23 people that's four and a half percent of the population is that not insane and also, uh, thanks to Anne for this little data point, but the CDC only in 2012, but that's already dated, but already, um, says that half of Americans have a systemic illness. So cancers aside, but illness that affects our entire system. It's half of Americans. So we have to maybe take a look at epidemiology and figure out what constitutes a crisis, but because something bad is going on. So, um, anyway, I'm with you on all that. And um, I guess that's what it is. That was the first part of the story, and it's part of why I organized this event. Um, the second story is an ancient Buddhist parable from India. Um, it's the story of the the blind people who in, get introduced to an elephant. They hear, oh, there's this crazy creature that's coming to town. You've never experienced it, but it's called an elephant. And um, come, come check it out. So the blind people do. And uh, they each, oh, this was, I'm um, uh, missed a slide. Elephants. Um, the uh, they each since they're blind, they can't see the whole picture, so they take a portion of it. And one uh, addresses the trunk and says, "Oh, elephant! It's like a snake." Uh, another one addresses the the legs, like an elephant is two trees, this is big trees. Another one approaches it as just a wall. Oh, the elephant is a wall. Another one uh, touching the tail says, "It's a rope." And finally, one feeling the trunk says, an elephant is a sword. And in most of the stories, they fight and um, chaos ensues. In my story, in my version of it, they uh, figure it out. They all share things. And, and from this gestalt, they put together the big picture. And, um, and at least the audiences can do that. They can say, oh, we've heard these people, experts, talk about uh, the elephant, and now we can understand it. And so that is kind of what we're doing tonight um, with a couple of differences. Um, the elephant is invisible, um, and the uh, panelists are not blind. In fact, they are the ones who can see. So um, I'm pretty excited to find out 
what they can see. Uh, will it be a water bear like this one? Uh, what else? Um, to mix the metaphor, we're the ones in Plato's cave looking at the two-dimensional shadows on the wall. They're the ones who have been outside or inside into the third and fourth dimensions, and they are coming to us to share with us what they know. And uh, I'm pretty stoked about it. Any one of these panelists could be a program unto themselves. However, uh, in the spirit of symbiosis and in the spirit of margins and uh, discovery, we are going to explore what happens when things overlap. And we're going to try to create a cultural moment when we, we get beyond and we start to assemble different things and so that we can see the whole elephant and, and make changes in our behavior. Um, the panelists tonight as I mentioned, are super smart, broad-minded. Uh, they themselves practice beyond any one silo, um, and they will be speaking in the order that I um, describe them now. First, um, Anne B. Clay. She's a biologist, an environmental planner, and a landscape designer, also an expert gardener. She's a writer who writes from deep personal experience, um, this is the book that she co-authored, The Hidden Half of Nature. You can purchase it tonight over at the table on my right. Uh, Dr. Will DePaolo bridges laboratory science and medical applications, not to mention art and community organizing, too, via the Center for Microbiome Sciences and Therapeutics at University of Washington, which he directs. He's also Associate Professor of Medicine at UW and the recipient of the Garvey Endowed Chair in Gastroenterology. Um, CMIST, which is the acronym for his uh, uh, center at UW, is hosting a symposium on the microbiome two days this June. So there should be flyers at the front desk or uh, on your chair. You can check that out. Um, Dr. Jennifer Walk has studied the microbiome of birds and amphibians as well as that of bees. She is the assistant professor of biology at Eastern Washington University in Cheney, where she's also primary investigator on a National Science Foundation research project into the bee microbiome and pesticides and diet and all kinds of other cutting-edge stuff. And finally, Alyssa Arnheim, another scientist, um, ecological planning and conservation bi biology in her case, uh, who moved into additional areas. Alyssa's into food culture and community transformation. She runs Healthy Gut, Happy Child workshops for parents and is also a certified fermentationist. So, um, like I said, the cool thing, all these panelists put aside their ego and said, yeah, I'll speak for five minutes and then have a conversation with three or four other people. But it's because they understand uh, the project that we're that we're at here. And I think you do too. Hopefully that's why you came is to kind of um, get out of your comfort zone, learn something new. And um, I'm interested to see what, uh, what kind of cultural things that we can together change to make uh, better relationships with our ecology. So thank you again for being here and thanks for listening. I want to welcome now Anne B. Clay. All right, great. Thank you, Bob. Okay, always fighting with the things that are too tall. Um, <clears throat> okay, we're just going to make peace with that. So, uh, thank you, Bob, former program manager. Awesome. Okay, so that's right, five minutes. <laughs> he said five and a half. Okay, let's get going then. So, um, 
This book, The Hidden Half of Nature, I co-authored with my husband, David Montgomery. And when, if you've read the book or you, you're thinking that you're going to write one, here's the deal. Um, you have these ideas at the beginning, and it turns out that that's not what you end up writing about. Because this was going to be a book about how uh, gardeners and gardening could save the world. One thing led to another, and we were soon deep into microbiome. So microbiome, we've, we've heard that word a lot. And I'm sorry. <laughs> so microbiome, that is, in, in its simplest level, what that is is it's communities of the tiniest creatures on our planet and they live inside of other living things, whether that's a plant, a person, a goldfish, a dog, or a cat. And this book explores the microbiomes of the botanical world, so plants, as well as us, humans. And had I um, not done all the research for this book, this idea would have appealed to me anyway. I'm a biologist, but the more that... Uh, David and I looked into this topic, we realized how fundamental microbiomes are to the health and well-being of just about everything. And it's really hard for us to wrap our brains around that because we are such visual creatures ourselves, and we want to be able to see things, and we want to be able to touch things, and that's really hard to do with the microbiome. But I think once you learn a little bit more about microbiomes, you'll see that that's not always necessary to um, gain an appreciation for something. And so the story starts here. Here's the backstory. I was a wannabe gardener. Um, and David and I, after arriving in Seattle some years ago, finally bought a house. And what I saw was one large blank slate. And unfortunately, this was the dirt that we had. And this sent me into a complete and utter panic. For those of you who know Dave, he wrote a book called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. And here we are in our own backyard with the erosion of more civilization. And so this is what led me to begin thinking, How? what am I going to do here? This is dead dirt. This is not dream dirt. This is a dirt that is going to dash everything I've ever thought about when it came to a garden. And so there's nothing like a challenge um, to get yourself moving and to think about how to solve problems. More ironically, how is it that a biologist and a geologist don't dig a freaking soil pit in their own yard? And yet, soil was where sort of biology met geology, and we didn't really look into it. But I had done enough gardening, and my gut said, I think you need to start with organic matter. And by this time, the wannabe gardener had spent all the money on plants, so there was no buying of any organic matter, okay? And that's why I say that I got I got busy really quickly. And it's amazing in Seattle how if you just look around, there's a lot of free stuff just sitting there. Okay? And other people don't realize this. In fact, you can knock on their door and you can say things like, could I have all of your oak leaves, please? And they are more than happy to give you things like this. And you can find coffee grounds, as we all know, they're lying all over the place in this town. And so that's what I began to do. I began to haul things home. 
ton after ton after ton of things. And I would also make friends with arborists who were in the neighborhood and say, hey, I would really like to have some of your wood chips. So the long and the short of it is I began to gather all of this organic matter. And what was I doing with this? You're like, what is she going to do with it? I was mixing this up into mulches. On that first slide, I don't know if you noticed, that was my flame barrow there. Because once I painted it with flames, it went faster and faster and faster. I thought I was going to, I was mixing these mulches up. I was laying them on the beds and I couldn't work fast enough. And I thought, I'm just going to lay this down here and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to dig it in because that's what gardeners do. They dig stuff into the soil. The long and the short of that is that I never did have time to go back and dig that in. And I began to look at the mulch and I noticed, and I grabbed Dave because he's not a gardener, but I do make him look at the garden and help me out with things. And I said, the mulch, it's degrading and it's decomposing, and I don't think I'm going to dig it in. I think this is happening all on its own. And sure enough, it was. The biology was starting to happen. And I didn't know, neither did he, like exactly what was going on. And that was part of the exploration in the first part of the hidden half of nature, was to take a long, deep dive into the botanical world and the plant world and to ask, how is it the plants keep themselves well? And what is it that makes a plant grow? So fast forward, and what you have here, this is uh, soil on your left is what we started with, and the soil on the right is what we have now. And the surprising thing to me is how quickly this happened. I mean, there's not many things that you can beat Mother Nature at, but I would contend that making soil is one of them. It can take, you know, depending on what region of the country you're in, anywhere between, you know, a couple hundred to 500 years for nature to make an inch of soil. In about a decade, we had started to get some really nice topsoil, and now we're about 18 or 20 years out with this. So I wasn't buying a bunch of stuff in boxes and packages and bags. I was just kickstarting and keeping the biology going. And because there's gardeners in the room, of course, this is what now we have. I mean, the dead dirt came back to life. And often when I'm speaking with farmers, they're all talking about their various crops. And I have to say, excuse me, I have crops too. They just happen to be crops that are visually stunning in my estimation. And and so they kind of nod and laugh and, you know, they go along with me. But anyway, I have, I have crops of maples, crops of food, and of course, crops of flowers, because pollinators are one of our topics for tonight. Now, as this mulch is disappearing and we're taking, um, you know, a look into the soil, what was really amazing in doing all of this research was what was really happening. And there's a very special wild and alive place beneath our feet in most normally functioning soils, and it's called a rhizosphere. And so on your left, what the rhizosphere is, just think about it this way, it's a halo-shaped area around each and every root and root hair of a plant. And within the rhizosphere, it's maybe a nanometer to maybe a couple of millimeters out from the root system. It is one of the most life-dense places on our planet. Now, who'd have thunk that? This is a place we can't see, we can't really get our arms around it, and yet it's vibrant and full of life. 
And what's happening there, a lot more detail in the book, is basically a plant is stuck in place. That green body is stuck in place. It can't get up and run away. So it starts to manufacture compounds and molecules. And they put these cocktails of compounds together, and those are called exudates. And they flow out of the roots into the rhizosphere and into the mouths, so to speak, of the members of the root microbiome. And what's really cool is it's estimated that something like 40% of the photosynthate that a plant makes it uses to make all of these compounds that get into these exudate cocktails and it goes into the rhizosphere to feed that microbiome. And you're thinking, wow, I'm not sure I'd put 40% of my paycheck out on the sidewalk. Well, right, because you don't really know what you're going to get from that. But in this case, the plant is getting all kinds of things. Plant growth promoting hormones, for starters, and it's getting intel really good intel about what else is going on in the soil. Those exudates flow out, they're consumed, microbes, mostly bacteria, but there are others as well. We don't even really totally know about the composition of the root microbiome. You consume these, and we've all that heard that term waste product. We really need another term for these byproducts that um, after bacteria have consumed exudates, they put these waste products out, but they're really very, very interesting compounds and molecules. Those are taken back up by the plant root, and this is one of the oldest symbiotic relationships that we have on earth. And because you kind of have to think about it, oh yeah, for those maybe who don't know. So some 450 million years ago, these little twig-like plants were coming out of these watery aquatic environments onto land, and there wasn't much soil at that time. And these little tiny plants, they're, they're not, they don't have all these big floppy leaves, and they certainly don't have flowers, and pollinators are nowhere on the scene yet, but they need to live. And so they began to form these associations with fungi in the soil. And this was the beginning of the great botanical world that we have around us. So thinking and learning all of this stuff about the, the green bodies of plants, I began to wonder, what if there's a rhizosphere? I mean, what about the microbiomes of other things? Are there rhizosphere-like places, you know, in my body, in, in Dave's body, in every body out there? And what would that be? And this coincided with um, my own case of cancer in the middle of writing this book. And of all things, it was a microbe. It was a virus, a human papillomavirus. And so we might like to think that microbes and microbiomes are warm and fuzzy and helpful, and they are. But I always say about microbes, they have a duality. They're kind of mercurial. And they can shift and pivot on a dime. And so another challenge, first there was the dead dirt, and then there was me with cancer. And I'm like, okay, how, what's, what's going on here? And anytime you take an interest in your body, chances are you're going to bump into your immune system. And indeed, that is what happened to me. And this is sort of the other part of The Hidden Half of Nature. About half of the book is on the human microbiome. And of all things, the human microbiome, most of it, the lion's share is down in the lowermost part of the digestive tract. And we don't often like to talk about the digestive tract, but it's there. And your digestive tract is far, far from being some kind of a garbage can, folks. It really is 
is and can be more like an onboard medicine chest, depending on what kind of things you're sending down the hatch. So the other interesting thing about the digestive tract is that our immune system, something like, and I guess maybe one of my other panelists can correct me on this, but something like 80% of the immune system is associated with, um, with the digestive tract. You're thinking, wow, that's kind of weird. I wonder why that is. Well, it turns out <clears throat> there's sort of a biological bazaar inside of all of us as well. And so you have different types of immune cells that are shown here. One can slide this like arm-like feature up in between colon cells and it will sample things in the gut. And it's not exactly sampling the food. You have to think about it like this. It's sampling for chemicals and for compounds because it's going to share that intel. It's another form of intel. It's going to share that with its um, sibling immune cells. And so our immune system is very keyed into what the microbiome is presenting to it and what kind of um, information is there and what the immune system is going to act on. Because basically, the immune system needs to find out what's a friend, what's a foe, who can stay, and who must go. I mean, that's pretty much what it's about. And so you want a lot of information informing that sort of a relationship. And what it all comes down to is this. We have these parallel universes, the root of a plant, and the gut of a mammal or the gut of any other animal. And um, it really is, when you take a, a, a hard look at these things, many of the same fundamental processes are going on. It's about nutrients. It's about um, intelligence that's exchanged. It's about these metabolites that the microbiome makes and how that influences the host. And so I'm going to conclude with my part now and um, hand it over to my other panelists who are going to, I think, go off into various other areas of this. So thank you. Um, I want to thank um, everybody for inviting me here and uh, Bob for inviting me here um, to tell you a little bit about what I do and to um, and to answer questions that you have about the microbiome. I um, My story is going to be a little bit more personal and then I'm going to try to open it up in very broad um, strokes because we are doing a lot at the center and I, I didn't want to uh, kind of talk about one story in general, but just basically uh, give you a global overview. So I didn't realize that bees were a theme tonight, <laughs> but just by happen chance, my first slide's a bee. Um, I, so my story begins with me as a graduate student um, working on the immune system and and studying for my PhD in, in immunology and infectious disease. And 9-11 happened. And, um, and I had friends down in um, lower Manhattan. And I remember I was in Chicago at the time and they, they um, cleared out Chicago, the downtown area. And it became a big topic was the, the idea of bioterrorism and bioterrorist effects and, and manipulating bugs to, to do damage. And I realized that I knew all this stuff about the immune system, but I didn't know anything about bacteria. And so I decided to 
switched from um, my graduate work in immunology, and I went and did a hardcore molecular microbiology postdoctoral fellowship um, looking at and uh, coming up with uh, cures for uh, bubonic plague and um, anthrax. And so this required getting into a suit every day and trudging down into the dark um, <laughs> basement of the buildings and, and working with mice and with bugs that are, could potentially, or were potentially lethal, um, with the respirator, showering twice a day because you shower in and shower out and you have a buddy system and you get to know those people really well. And, um, and, and I threw myself into understanding these microbes and it was just a fascinating um, world because these bugs are so... Um, malleable. They change so easily to the environments that they're in. And they have so many genes that can easily be manipulated and turned on and off, whereas our genes takes a little bit more time. And so I became sort of enthralled with these bugs. And um, I then got stuck with plague um, <laughs> by accident. But my friend, um, my colleague handed me a needle with plague in it and I was injected. And I realized, um, shit. Um, <laughs> so I I had to go to the, the doctor and after, you know, they, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, they put me in a room and just told me, just go in the back corner. And, um, and about seven, eight hours into not getting antibiotics, I started to freak out. <laughs> and I, was, I need antibiotics. And, and I did get antibiotics and I was quarantined and I'm fine. I'm not contagious. Um, I'm actually probably vaccinated against plague now. And, um, after that experience, I said, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Um, and so I looked around and I, um, Yersinia pestis, the agent of plague, has a sister pathogen, a sister bug that is called Yersinia enterocolitica. And it's a pathogen that can give you food infections. So it's an uncooked pork and bad water. And um, so I, I kind of switched realms a little bit and I started working in the gut. And this was before the microbiome. There was no word the microbiome that when I was doing this, it was just, I was doing poop, poop science. I was just working in poop. And, um, and so, you know, I started, you know, exploring this idea of this, how, um, pathogens could interact with these gut microbes that, that we didn't know anything about. The technology was, um, didn't let us know the types of bacteria that were there. It was very broad. This is not that long ago. I'm not that old. Um, it was like maybe, you know, less, maybe a decade and a half ago. And, and, and the technology was just moving so fast. And so the things that were amazing to me about bugs is that for, in our human uh, gut, you, we are equal to the number of bugs in our gut. So you're equal to the number of bacteria one to one. They say 10 to one, but, um, uh, it's one to one. And, but what's more astonishing is that we, they have 360 microbial genes to every single one of our genes. Okay. This means that they can manipulate these genes, turn them on and off and, and have so much genetic variability that it's an astounding thing, first of all. And it also means that they can have such, um, detrimental and such um, important effects to our health and well-being. But, um, I caution everybody because as the microbiome has skyrocketed to rock star status, everybody talks about it. I hear it in line at the grocery store. I hear it on NPR. We have to be careful and cautious about where we go with this. Um, there's so many cure-alls and so many companies out there looking to make money off of the microbiome that we have to be careful. And I'm very much about making sure that um, correct scientifically proven um, material gets to the public because I think that it's my job as an educator to do that. And, and so, you know, I think the microbiome holds a lot of secrets, 
but we're still at the very infancy of this this field. And if we don't want to sort of inhibit its growth any further, I think there's some cautious uh, cautions that we need to take. And I can talk about those later, but um, is this slide? Okay. So um, I, and every one of us is unique. So our microbiome is like a fingerprint or a snowflake in all of you, right? So to understand this vast, um, array of bacteria that's inside all of us, you can't, it's going to be a very personalized approach and it's going to be a very specific um, diagnosis and a specific sort of recipe that you have to tailor for yourself. It's not going to be a cure-all for everybody. Um, we do a lot of work with probiotics and and trying to understand how probiotics works with some people and some people it does not work with. And we found that your body it's not a parking space. You can't just put any probiotic in it. It's like a glove. And so you have to find the probiotic that works with the bacteria that are already present in your system. And so this is sort of the crux of our research. It's kind of trying to dive into these paradigms that are out there and find answers. So I was brought up from the University of Southern California to UW to direct the Center for Microbiome Sciences and Therapeutics. Um, the goal here was to bring microbiome forefront to the UW and the Seattle community. Uh, we um, really uh, take uh, pride in sort of getting out to the community as well. I, uh, we have a very strong arts and science um, initiative that I can talk about also later uh, that I, I'm very proud of. And then we also are doing these community-based events like the pamphlet you have on your seats. Um, these are the institutions. So we've only been up and running for two years, um, and we've already been able to create quite um, a roster of uh, collaborations, um, both at UW and in the uh, Seattle area with Fred Hutch and the Institute for Systems Biology, but also across the country at Rensselaer Polytech and, and other schools. And these are all the departments that um, already have members in our center and are working with us um, on projects. And so some of the projects I'll highlight um, before I go, and, and I'm more than happy to discuss any of these with you. Uh, so we work with, uh, we have a clinical study right now looking at um, probiotics and um, treating um, pre-diabetic obese children with probiotics and looking to see if we can delay the onset of diabetes, and we have really promising uh, results with that. I have a project in Africa that I'm very proud of because I love Africa. Um, it's looking at HIV-exposed microbiome in infants and looking at how um, that affects the severity of co-infections, so infections with um, E. coli, pathogenic E. coli. And what, surprisingly, what we found was that in infants that were treated with antibiotics but were HIV um, uninfected, we also see the same effect. So it looked like HIV and antibiotics, where both reduce your amount of bacteria in your gut, both have sort of the same effect on co-infections. And so we're kind of exploring that paradigm a little bit to understand what it is about reduced diversity or reduced richness of the microbiome that allows this um, E. coli to take place. Um, we have a big study that I really am proud of looking at bacterial genes as and function as biomarkers for um, precancerous polyps so that we're hoping to come up with a diagnostic where we can take your poop sample and we can look at the bacterial genes that are in it and we can tell you if you have a polyp or not. And this is going very well right now and I'm very excited about this research. And um, we have two art projects right now. Um, the first one is visualizing the microbiome in inflammatory bowel disease. This is with an artist who has Crohn's disease. 
And she came into the lab and she and I pleaded our poop um, side by side. I was the healthy. She was the, the, um, the sick. And we, she took pictures and images of all the bacteria that grew on the plates. And it was beautiful, actually. <laughs> um, and it was picked up for an exhibition in Philadelphia and then went to Europe. So my pictures of my pooper in Europe. <laughs> so, uh, who would have thought? Um, and, and she also went around and she asked a question that was really important, which she wanted to know if families, so in science, we know that when you're in a, in a family, in a unit, your microbiomes are probably very similar because you're intimate with those people around you. If you have pets, your microbiome's even more similar because people like petting their dogs more than their husbands and wives. And so it, it transmits the microbiome more um, back and forth. But she wanted to really show that and visualize it. So she went and found all these families and she took microbiome samples from their pets, birds, cats, the children. And then she plated them and we grew up the bacteria and we found which ones were predominant. And she made family crests for each family of the three bacteria that were the most prevalent. And she found that no, no family was identical and that even within families, there was such diversity um, amongst the people. Uh, so that was something that I'm very proud of also because we got um, funding through a scientific foundation for that work, which was very artistic. And we got to present that to a bunch of scientists and they didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> And lastly, um, we have a current artist in residence named Tyler Fox who um, is, does stuff with sound, and he also ferments food. And so he's taking kimchi and sauerkraut, and over time, we sampled the microbiome of that kimchi and sauerkraut and looked at all the different bacteria that were there. And it changes daily, so you've got... 20 bacteria the first day, and you might have 10 very different ones the second day. And then all of a sudden, by the end, there's one bacteria, and it's usually like a lactobacillus, hopefully, hopefully. Um, and so he's assigning each of these bacteria sound, and so that then he's hoping to make sort of this cacophony of bacteria kind of fighting together, and then you'll hear like a solo artist or a solo sound at the end to illustrate what happens during the fermentation process and to teach children and to, and to get out into the community to sort of teach people what what happens when bacteria grow together and how these, what happens during the fermentation process. So um, I'm going to end it there because I think you guys will ask me some lots of questions about this, but I just want to end with, you know, CMIST and our goal is to inspire discovery and inspire the community as well. And so um, we're very excited to be here and we're very excited to answer questions and um, please uh, e email us and look us up at the university. So uh, thanks. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here in such great company with all of you today. So this is auger art. It's kind of stemming off of what Will was just talking about, this mixture of art and science. Um, so instead of using paint, a paintbrush, and um, a canvas, auger art uses microbes, inoculating loops, and auger petri dishes to produce art. Um, and so this is one of my favorite art, auger art images because it combines both microbes and um, bees, which is one of the main focus areas of my research. So just to reiterate the point that's been made already, most of life is invisible. Just the tiny little tip of the entire tree of life is actually visible, things like plants and animals. 
and the rest is microbial. And so we really are animals in a microbial world as opposed to these microbes in an animal world, right? And so as a microbiologist, I often get asked things like, you know, are you constantly worried about getting germs on your hands? You know they're everywhere. Um, Are you a germaphobe? And I say that actually it's quite the opposite. Um, You know, I know they're everywhere. I know it's impossible to get rid of them all. Um, And most of them are harmless. And in fact, many are beneficial. Um, So... No, I'm not worried about it, although I do still wash my hands regularly, so don't worry um, (laughs) about that. All right, so I'm here to talk about bees and their microbes. Um, And so I really do think that that bees and their microbes are a link between human health and soil and food health, which is the purpose of this um, forum tonight and which is so exciting to be here and to be able to make those connections. Um, So we know that bees are important pollinators um, for many of our food crops, as well as natural plants as well. We're also learning that bees are important and other pollinators for transmitting microbes among plants and also to and from the soil environment. Um, Bees are also being um, studied as a model system to understand the more complex human microbiome as well. So what do we know about the honeybee gut microbiome? So it's relatively simple, about 8 to 10 bacterial groups. And many of those are also similar to human microbes, as well as um, things like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium that you might have heard about. But what we don't know is the level of strain variation within each of these groups. And so it might actually be more complex than we think because of that variation. The bee microbiome is also relatively quick to establish. So the top here is showing the timeline of um, emergence of a bee as an adult. And within a week, it has its characteristic microbiome that it maintains for the rest of its life. This is in contrast to humans, which can take years and years and years to develop. And then it can change over time um, through development as well as aging processes as well. And so... For these reasons, we can use the bee gut microbiome to manipulate and do experimental manipulations um, and be able to track the bee gut microbiome over time a lot easier than it would be to do um, with humans. So we can use it as a model for the microbiome of bees or for human microbiome as well as understanding, you know, development and behavior and other aspects of human biology too. Okay, so we know bees are important, but they are experiencing a lot of threats from factors like pesticides, nutrition, and disease as well. And so what my research is interested in, and as well as others around the world, is how these environmental factors influence the gut microbiome. And so with the gut microbiome, we're interested in the structure of it, which is referring to, you know, who's there and how much of each of the members is present, as well as the function. So what are these microbes doing for their hosts? Um, So we're also learning that it goes both ways in that the microbiome can also allow the bees to, you know, degrade certain toxic chemicals from pesticides or acquire nutrients from food that they're eating or, you know, fight off certain diseases, parasites, pathogens as well. And so in these microbiomes, 
both in the soil or in the human gut or bee gut, it's constant chemical warfare. Um, these microbes are producing chemicals as part of their regular metabolism, but also, you know, trying to compete for other, um, against other members of the, the microbiome as well for these limited resources. And so what we're interested in is trying to harness the power of these chemicals and use them to benefit um, society and health in lots of different ways. And so when thinking about pollinator protection, does the answer um, lie in microbes? And there's a handful of things that researchers are doing involving microbes to protect pollinators. And so one of those is probiotic bacteria for bees. And there are commercially available products out there. Some of you guys, if you're the beekeepers, you might have heard about them or even tried them. We're doing research on this in our lab to test the efficacy of these products um, to see if they really do help the bees. There's also research in thinking about genetically engineering these microbes to be able to continuously produce compounds that can um, enhance the bee's immune system and fight off these threats. Um, of course, that there could be promise there, but of course, there's also you know a lot of things to consider, and including ethical considerations there as well. There's research into using mushroom extracts to protect bees as well, and using viruses to protect bees. So there are um, viruses called bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacterial cells. Um, and these can be used to control bacterial pathogens that affect the bees too. So all different types of microbes that might be able to help protect pollinators. And just to kind of make the connection with bees and microbes and cancer, um, like I mentioned, a lot of these microbial compounds are being studied and might actually be more potent than chemotherapy against cancer. Um, also, thinking about using bee and hive products um, as, as medicine, including bee venom. So there's a lot of research into using venom and how that also has anti-cancer properties as well. And lastly, we can capitalize on bees' heightened um, olfactory senses and their ability to smell, as well as their ability to be trained um, in order to detect cancer and other diseases as well. Um, and so that might be a promising area to quickly um, and cheaply and accurately test for cancer um, as well. And so I'll just remind you, though, and I think um, the other two panelists so far have pointed this out as well, that microbes exist along this continuum, right? And so there are true mutualists, there are true pathogens, but that can change depending on the environmental context. Um, so while one microbe might be a mutualist in one case, if, you know, there's an imbalance or a dysbiosis, if there's too much of that microbe or too little of that microbe, or if it's producing different genes in different amounts, then that can change its role as, as a mutualist, right? So that it's a very dynamic system. 
And so I'll just end by saying that I really do think that microbes are key to our future, um, both in terms of pollinator health, but also agricultural health, um, ecosystem health. So microbes can also degrade plastic. We have a huge plastic problem on our planet, and so maybe microbes can be the solution there as well. Um, and also for human health, too, like we've been talking about. So I'm really happy to be here to kind of bring that all together. And um, thank you. Mommy, is that safe for me to eat? I was in the kitchen. I was slicing up a crisp, juicy red pepper. I kept glancing at the lists I'd posted on the wall. I'd written them out in magic marker, backed them in colorful construction paper. They were my doctor's diet recommendations for my son, and I was following them to a T. My little boy was barely four years old, and he had SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. After a, uh, it was the latest chapter in our healing journey, after cancer, surgeries, a long list of food reactions, rashes, anxiety, inflammation, and more. I thought it would look fun and playful to have all that color in our limited food lists, but it wasn't fun, not for any of us. And in that moment, I realized how not fun it was for my little boy. He was afraid of food and didn't even trust me to feed him. I didn't sign up for this. Why was being a mom so hard? Something had to change, so I tore down the lists, threw them in the recycle bin. (laughs) I said, hey, lovey, we're going to take a break from all these food lists. We're just going to (laughs) eat. The next day, I called his GI doctor to tell her the plan. My heart was racing (laughs) in the nervous sweats. (laughs) No more food lists. No more diets, no more stress. I told her we really needed to calm down, both of us. And I had a few ideas. Is this okay? I asked. She said yes. She gave me a few more ideas, and we were off and running on our new experiment. It was scary at first, trusting my intuition and standing up for my little boy by going against a doctor's recommendations and everything I'd read up until that point. But I knew my son couldn't heal, living in constant fear of food, in fear of his own body, and with a mom who was terrified he could die if she fed him the wrong thing. My name is Alyssa Arnheim. I'm a health coach for moms and kids. 
I'm a certified fermentationist. I have a Master of Science degree in ecological planning. I spent years teaching and collecting data in the forests and mountains. And I spent years working in a hospital procedure center just up the street from us. Now, I support children and their families by taking an ecosystem approach to health, a microbiome approach. We use everything from testing for metabolites to weeding and seeding particular microbes to just making life easier for families so they can finally relax together and eat. Now back to my story. A few weeks later, I heard my little boy bellowing from the bathroom. Hey, mommy! I just had a cool dude number four. (laughs) For those of you who don't know what a cool dude number four is, it's a number two, the best number two, the kind of number two that says the gut is getting better. Yes! In my house, we get really excited about a good-looking poop. (laughs) My story is not unique. For my child, it was cancer and SIBO. For yours, it may be that constant sickness and fatigue that never goes away, the anxiety, or the... We'll get to that. (laughs) Maybe it's the anxiety or the tantrums or um, the belly issues, problems at school. Maybe it's the picky eating. I believe that more diagnoses and medications and special therapy appointments are not always what's needed for health. Sometimes... A family's return to nature is a child's best medicine. Does that feel a little uncomfortable? It would have made me feel uncomfortable a few years ago. I did the research. I followed the directions. I fed my baby all the vegetables. But when my baby was born, and we were both sloshed full of antibiotics... Even though I understood intimately how in forests and meadows and even the ocean floor, species diversity is the very source of resilience, it hadn't yet occurred to me that this applied to my own body and to my newborn son. So I want you to hear me out. Because in the past five years, I've helped hundreds of families, just like yours, to restore their child's life and to restore their own sanity and joy in the process. Healing our microbiomes, from our guts to the soil to the bellies of the bees, is how we heal humanity And in tonight's presentation with uh, Jennifer Walke, Anne Bicle, 
Dr. William DePaulo and Bob Redmond. We're going to show you how. Thanks for being here. Thanks, everyone. While the crew is setting uh, the conversation space up, um, what is in the box? Uh, door prizes. Can't have an event without door prizes. So um, they, they made it hard on me because the chairs are see-through, so I couldn't put tape underneath them. But there is a crossbar underneath your seat. On the left-hand side of that crossbar, for four of you, is a piece of green painter's tape. And if you got one of those four lucky numbers, you're going to get um, a jar of honey or this beautiful candle from Big Dipper um, or this um, true Northwest native seed. This is the best pollinator seed there is from Northwest Meadowscapes. And or... Um, a calendar, 2020 calendar from from Jeremy Collins from Mountaineers Books. So, um, hopefully you had enough time to find out any any winners. Hopefully that tape. Look under the seat. Maybe it fell off. Um, I remember kind of where they were. There was one over there, there was two in the middle, and there was one over there. Wow, interesting. I really hit them well. They're on the underneath the seat on the crossbar, a piece of green tape. Did you find it? Yay, come on up here. Jennifer, could you help me out? Okay, um, great. Looks like we're set here. Panelists, you can come on up and help yourself to a seat. Jenny, you can come on up here. We'll figure that out later. Um, if you find a sticker, you got some seeds up here. So um, I'm glad everybody stuck to their five minutes. <laughs> it was an impossible assignment. Um, thanks, everybody. So what I'm going to do is... Um, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions because I want to get to your questions too, which are probably a lot more urgent. But uh, one thing I'm kind of stuck on is this um, cultural change. Um, there's a lot of information that came at you. And, oh, yeah, um, I, I won't bring up the prop, but at, the, at Kinko's today or at FedEx, they had um, on the counter uh, Lysol spray. Travel size kills 99.7% of 
of everything. Uh, <laughs> bacteria, viruses, microbes. I'm like, they don't know about this event tonight. Um, <laughs> but I'm interested, and I know that, uh, Will, you said that, you know, microbiome was kind of a rock star, but I don't think that it's totally sunk in yet. And uh, my question is, well, I want to frame it constructively. What, and from anybody, what do you see as kind of the upside of the microbiome? Like, imagine that everybody does get on board with, wow, there's this whole unseen ecology that we did not really recognize. And now, now that we know, this means what? For the way that we grow food, for the way that we do medicine, for the way that we feed ourselves. Uh, what does it mean? What, what, what's your vision of uh, a microbiome literate culture? That's a big question. <laughs> um, I guess I, I can start with that one. Um, I think I think it can change a lot, and and I think because if we can make those connections from soil to gut, and and show people that you know the type of bacteria that are in the soil are going to affect the wheat, or are going to affect these bees, or are going to affect food crops. I think that we can start. Um, I think we can start doing a lot, and and. In fact, just isolating just the knowledge of what is in your gut sometimes is enough to change habits. And I think that that's also going to be a big big thing is because a lot of times it's the habits that we have. And, and you don't realize that um, you know chronic stress will change your microbiome. So we, you heard a lot of the panelists talking about, um, they said your environment shapes your microbiome. And that's exactly true. Um, your microbiome is shaped when, and I'm going to give a little background here because I'm going to dodge the question a little bit because it's a big question. But um, <laughs> um, your microbiome is shaped from when you're born, right? So your cesarean section versus vaginal birth determines the, your starting microbiome. And then the breastfeeding or bottle feeding also then changes that, shapes it. And then the last change is when you're introduced to solid foods and then puberty. But your microbiome is pretty much set after that. So those early events in life, I think, are really important. And the more that we can educate um, families and educate um, uh, the public about how what we feed our children, what we put on the table, I think it's really important. And it goes with what you were saying. It's a very important aspect of this. And so I think it starts with just sort of these behavioral sort of changes and, and, and just educating people so that they can even just start small. I don't know. Thank you. Anyone else want to comment on vision of a microbiome literate culture? I can share something also. Um, along the lines of what you were saying, um, yeah, when we think about food as not just like what we're eating, but what we're feeding, this massive, complicated world that we totally depend on, then food looks a little different. Then, like thinking about what did I eat today is kind of like, oh wow, I didn't, I didn't really eat a lot of vegetables, or oh, I didn't eat, I haven't had any ferments yet, and like these are all things that I want to get in in a day. Um, and so it's just a different way of looking at food. But also, then going back to your Lysol and um, and to the the microbiome is is like it's set. It has this like way of evol evolution during our years of life, um, really concentrate, uh, concentrating on supporting life rather, rather than killing. Because even though we have these pathogenic overgrowths of microbes that are, that are not helping us, that maybe need to be rebalanced, um, 
we always have to think of what are we feeding to fill in any, like you, I think someone said, it's not like a parking space, right? Like there's always life everywhere filling up our, our internal microbiomes. So we need to be really conscientious of who are we feeding even as we're trying to remove or starve or shift things. Thank you. Um, Jenny, your research deal, it's, it's really about, or I don't know, the way uh, my reading of it is about efficacy. It's really constructive, like, does this work or should we be doing that? Um, do the bees benefit from this? Have you drawn, and I'm, my ultimate question is, what are some, because I promised this, what things can we do um, to change our behavior to be more healthy. And and I'm wondering if your research has kind of turned up anything in that regard, either with regard to humans or bees or amphibians, or what are some concrete conclusions you've drawn? Yeah, definitely. So like you mentioned, I've worked in lots of different systems, um, most recently with bees, but in the past with amphibians, birds. I've looked at wetland microbiomes as well as um, soil. And so what I'm really interested in is trying to understand the generalities that might exist across different systems. So what are the common themes that we can um, notice about the effects of microbes on um, the host or the environment that they live in? And what are some of the things that make them unique as well. Um, but definitely, you know, across the board, my research um, as, you know, and kind of the, the research community is definitely showing that there, there's a role in the microbiome in almost any system that's been investigated. Um, so with, with the amphibians, it's kind of really interesting because um, maybe you're not aware about of this, but amphibians, so frogs and salamanders, are dying around the world. Um, there is a fungal disease that infects their skin, and that is um, causing declines in populations and even extinctions of hundreds of amphibian species around the world. Um, and so that, that in that system, um, we have found that the um, the microbiome is. Um, definitely influencing the whether or not amphibians are able to survive or die in the presence of this fungal pathogen. Um, and the, the microbes on the skin of amphibians, because it's a skin fungal disease, and amphibians breathe through their skin, and so um, it's really important function for them. And so, so that's just an example of another system that is demonstrated where um, the microbiome is really important. Um, but it it really is just trying to identify those generalities and also thinking about you know ecological processes, even like you know what you learn about in grade school, like competition, predator prey interaction, um, you know um, keystone species, all these um, basic you know interactions you might think about like wolves and and elk. Like, can we apply those principles in microbial systems to um, these macroecological concepts to microorganisms? And so that's another thing where um, we're trying to figure out kind of in a variety of systems, those types of questions. Thanks. Anne, in your book you say, quote, the root is the gut and the gut is the root. Can you um, talk about that? specifically with respect to what people can do every day to kind of um, develop that uh, relationship? Sure, yeah. Um, So I just have to tell a little story about 
when that epiphany struck. Because um, it wasn't immediately apparent to Dave or I as we were writing this book, but Dave's in a band, and and I go to a lot of the concerts, not all of them, but um, it's a it's a rock band. And anyway, so there I was one night, and um, and I usually sit in the back because it's usually too loud. I mean, this is why I should not be going to rock concerts, right? Because I'm sketching things on a napkin, halfway listening, and I was sketching this thing on a napkin, and I was sketching this cross section of the gut. And, and I was like, <laughs> and I'm like, this is so interesting. There's like this mucus layer on the, on the inside of the gut and there's cells below that. And then you get further and further to the outer wall of the gut. And I'm like, well, where's the rhizosphere? There's, there's some rhizosphere thing going on here in the gut, but is it the mucus layer or is it the cells below? So I, I played around with this and and then I'm like, you're too, you're going too OC on this. Come up several levels and just realize that there are these very active surfaces um, in the root and the gut. And on these surfaces are where particular members of the microbiome congregate to communicate with their host. And what's really interesting is if you were to take, say, um, the human gut and turn it inside out, especially the small intestine part, which has all these little projections called, you know, you've seen those pictures, little papillae. And I'm like, oh my God, turn the gut inside out. And then those are like root hairs. Dave, look. I did that afterwards. But that was the moment where I thought there's some, there's some structural similarities. And often structural similarities mean oh, there's some similar functions. And so that was really when I realized um, how analogous these systems were and how important it was at, you know, at that point, too, to be thinking about what um, Alyssa was saying. So what's been eaten today in the rhizosphere? Is it a bunch of NPK fertilizer or is it like better stuff than that? And is it donuts in the human gut, or is there any whole plant foods that have, you know, made their way all the way down? So that was that was how I kind of got on to the root and the gut thing. And normally when I do um, this talk, you know, the very end slide is sort of the, the punchline of this all. And it's really, it's six words, it's pretty simple, and it's to mulch your soil inside and out. And so that was a way to follow up on, on the root and the gut. Because when you think about it that way, it's like, oh, yeah, constant food source for the microbiome. And then it can function and do all of its communication and, and things like that. Can I add one thing? Please. So and I, don't, I just want to say, because I feel like we're scared. Maybe it's like you have to change your diet and eat only healthy. Like Your gut is very, very transient, malleable. It, 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 it can adjust. You can have a donut once in a while and it's not going to kill you it's not going to send you into a state of dysbiosis and you're going to get every disease and that's what you know i just want it, it is an idea of moderation your gut it changes from morning to night so you wake up with a different microbiome than you go to bed with because of the daily fluctuations in hormones and everything that you're exposed to they say that there's even a jet lag microbiome so when you go on an airplane your microbiome is going to change because of I think it's the amount of bacteria that's on the plane, but I don't necessarily think it's jet lag. But but I'm just so these they bounce back, and so it's a it's a living system that is going to try to get to an equilibrium. So as long as you live a healthy lifestyle, you can still have these sort of 
these little, you know, donuts every now and then or whatever. I just don't want to scare people into <laughs> thinking that their life is just fermented food and that's it, sauerkraut, and that's over. <laughs> I can seem really militant about it, but I just want to back you up. Like, the whole goal of, of supporting a gut or anyone's gut is so that they're flexible because, like, we're, we're supposed to be able to eat, like, naturally eat such a huge variety of foods. And all over the world, there are different people that are eating mostly sweet potatoes or they're eating mostly meats and fats and like really our body at its best is capable of huge variation in food so yeah i agree some junk food once in a while like yeah we can we can afford it <laughs> when our bodies are running well thanks i want to transition because i know you all have probably everybody's got three questions so um, we should get to it. Haley is going to um, give you kind of a rundown if you're not familiar with it, and we'll move on to your questions. Yes. Hello, uh, my name is Haley. I'm your house manager. We spoke a little earlier. Um, we are running short on time, so we really do only have time for a few questions. Um, I will cut us off if we need to. We have about 10 minutes to work with. Um, if you have a question, there's a microphone here. There's also a microphone there. Um, please keep your question in the form of a question. Please keep it concise as well. Um, and hopefully that way we can at least get to a few questions before we need to end for the evening. Thank you. I've been doing intermittent fasting for about seven months. What's going on in there, please? So there's a... It's a <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> so there's actually um, intermittent fasting is actually quite interesting. I actually I actually do intermittent fasting myself, and um, and I haven't tested my own microbiome surprisingly. But there are a number of papers that I think are coming out. I can't speak to it exactly, but I know that it's it's something that's really on the forefront of a lot of um, clinical trials and things like that. So I would just look in. I, I think you'll start to see more and more about it. I can't speak to any exact things right now, <laughs> any exact microbiome changes, but I know that's out there. I can say something general that's happening is um, when we, just like when we eat um, and we breathe, we're exhaling, we're pooping and peeing, um, the microbes inside us, like they're taking things in and they're putting things out. And a lot of the more um, kind of pathogenic, overgrowthy kind of microbes that we have living in us, they're producing toxic waste. Whereas the ones that are really healthy for us are producing things like butyrate that are actually sealing and healing our gut for us. So intermittent fasting is a really nice way to give ourselves a break from a lot of toxic junk that can be produced if we have overgrowths. So kind of a side benefit of intermittent fasting if you're working out some other issues. I'm curious what your thoughts are on probiotics. <laughs> I'll go first on this one. Um, so I do a lot of talks to community, uh, I'm just trying to educate people about probiotics in general because there's a lot of misconceptions out there and I think that the probiotic field really wasn't allowed to grow back about maybe 15 years ago because of the clinical trials all sort of failed with probiotics. Um, and so people moved away from them. Um, and then microbiome came about and people are studying my probiotics again. And I feel strongly that um, that I think there's a role for probiotics, but I think that we're going about it in a very wrong way. And this is my parking lot, uh, parking space glove sort of thing. Um, I think that you that your body's probably t 
tuned up for certain types of probiotic bacteria to live and thrive. And so you have to find one that fits. And I think what happens is that people think they can just go buy any probiotic off the shelf and it's going to change their lives. And I think it takes a lot of work to get something because you're going to have to. So I tell people you have to get that probiotic. You have to make sure that it's certified by a third party person because the FDA doesn't regulate them. So you don't know what's actually in them. So you have to have a third party that has made sure that that, that what's in it is in the number you have to write down the strains that are there and then if nothing happens after two weeks a month you don't feel better you don't change stop because it's not doing anything do a washout just kind of give yourself a break and then go pick a different one and and i think it's this this is i mean a trial and error sort of thing and and if you find one that works and there are people out there there's a study where there are people who are just probiotic responders and there's uh, and that same study shows that they're probiotic non-responders, and they don't understand the difference between what makes somebody responsive to probiotics or not. They think it's a combination of diet, nutrition, immune system, all these sort of factors. But um, but there is work out there showing that there are some people that will benefit from probiotics. It just takes some time to find the right one. I don't know. But... I think that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I was reading uh, Gabe Brown's book, uh, Dirt to Soil, which I found because I read David Montgomery's book, and now I'm going to buy your book. Um, but he talked about, um, he's a big believer, he's a farmer in North Dakota, for anybody who doesn't know, um, who's really into regenerative agriculture and taking care of his soil and making sure there's a very healthy, healthy microbiome in it. He indicated there was a connection between the nutrient density of the food coming off of his farm compared to other farms in the area. Um, and I was wondering if there is any research or thought or your thoughts about that actual tie between the microbial environment and microbiome in his dirt and the actual nutrient density of the food that he produces? So, so that's actually a, um, the topic of the next book that David and I are working on because I think we all would like to know the answer to that question. And I know that Gabe has made that assertion. And um, I, I think it's highly possible that there is a connection because we know that, so the soil has a diet, just like we have a diet. And when our diet, including the occasional donut, um, when our diet is nourishing the inner ecosystem, we're getting um, metabolites back from those microbes, like Alyssa was talking about. You want... Do you want the metabolites that are harmful or do you want the metabolites that are beneficial? And we know, at least in the plant world, that fertilizers, for example, um, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium are the three key things that all plants must have. And so if you're using a lot of fertilizer, the plant, plants are not dumb. It's just we can't really understand them. And they're like, why would I be pushing exudates out to get these nitrogen-fixing bacteria to feed me when I've got the farmer putting nitrogen in the soil. And so really what tends to happen, we think, with um, various agrochemical uh, products is that it scrambles the communication between the plant and its microbiome. And if that communication happens to be about, say, oh, zinc uptake, which is a really important um, nutrient for us, or it's scrambling messages about calcium uptake. That's how messing with the microbiome in the soil could push nutrient density one way or the other. So I think there's, um, there's good reason to believe that 
there there are those connections. Stay tuned. I mean, this the thing about the microbiome research, whether you're talking bees or plants or people, is that as you can all see, there's a lot of different variables, and these microbes and bacteria and so forth, they can um, respond to things very quickly. So it's hard to it's hard to exactly know. Um, Yes, we want to have this kind of a community in the rhizosphere to make sure we get adequate zinc uptake. I think where we're probably going to land on this is that what we really want to think about with human health or plant health is let's make sure the processes are in place that let the particular host organism communicate accurately, fully, and normally with its microbiome and when that's occurring, then we know, oh, the adequate amount of nutrients are most likely getting into these crops. We know for a human being, oh, yeah, the immune system is going to function on its own when it gets the right information. So um, that's kind of my long answer to that. Can I add something just really quickly about that? Um, I know that the Rodale Institute out of Pennsylvania is doing research on regenerative and um, organic farming versus conventional and how that impacts nutrient content in food as well. So yeah. that might be something to look into. This will be our last question. Okay, I think this is a good sum up question. So we know that there used to be a food pyramid and now there's a Harvard food plate. If you were asked and especially looking at you two over here, to revise the food, Harvard food plate to give general dietary recommendations, and you had to do it this year, <laughs> what would you recommend? I would recommend a lot. Most of the plate is vegetables, as many different colors as possible, plenty of, uh, of really clean fats, uh, and um, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Some protein, of course, but like the rainbow of vegetables, super important for all the different, because every different color of vegetable has different qualities, different kinds of fiber, different phytonutrients and phytochemicals that are feeding different microbes, and we want as much diversity as possible. I would just add, I mean, and that includes fermented foods. And I would definitely uptick uh, fermented foods and diet just because I think that it, we didn't talk about prebiotics, but prebiotics are basically, to use an analogy, it's like the fertilizer you would throw on the garden. So it's going to help all of those bacteria that are there that are good and maybe suffering a little bit in your gut to bloom and sort of grow. So I think um, definitely what you said and, and the fermented foods is what I would add to that. I so wish we had another hour, but that's okay. Thank you for, for being stimulated, and thank you guys for stimulating some good thoughts and conversation. up in the morning, yawning, cup 
Just watching wait to kick the dough in Cause they know I got them dope pins and it don't end So my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching wait to kick the dough in Cause they know I got them dope pins and it don't end So my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end uh, You come to my hood and tell me how to live I think I'm good, that's not what it is how it works, so I was at work on my craft Like I'm leaving the earth, like trees in the earth Getting deep in the dirt, not for reason I search, that's for the birds, like the season that trips You see, yeah. At first, you're the only thing I need On this earth, then Well, you're the only reason I hurt At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then Well, the only reason I hurt Maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it But I know you got a hit list of misters Who diss it, so now I can't have your big lips Just wanna love you for real though But when you come to work, you wear your still toes So you can't feel, no access to your seal So and so, I gotta pay the bill though And get fed, barely have the meal slow Girl, yeah Love is all I'm really here for Wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end, so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end up in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the dope in, cause they know I got them dope pens and the dope ends, so my enemies got no friends, yeah, it don't end, uh, see, me, I always been a thinker, see, so you telling me we gon' sink, uh, don't compute in my brain, I don't just shoot, I'm careful of my aim, and I'll be shooting to you, care for the same, on the same tree like some pairs, I'm just saying, we all have prayers for the same, already there is the plan, cop you a ticket, have you a visit to where this is, first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then, but you're the only reason I you're the only thing I need on this earth then You're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, yeah, yeah It's Ralph Rain